Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Allie Mellon. Allie Mellon is a Forrester analyst covering security operations. She's been in the technology industry for over a decade in various engineering roles, running her own engineering consultancy for a number of years before becoming a hacker. She advises enterprise clients on their security operations practice and is a frequent speaker at global industry-leading events. Welcome, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, Allie, why don't you give us a little bit more of a detailed introduction to yourself and tell us maybe how you got started in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'm a I'm a Forrester analyst. I've been a Forrester analyst for over a year now, though it feels like many, many more years. <laughs> and I cover security operations. So everything having to do with detecting and stopping um, attacks that are happening within the enterprise or within large governments. I got started in computer engineering generally way back in college. Um, I got my degree in computer engineering. And while I was there, I was spending a lot of time doing mobile app development, which got me um, started with my own consultancy, not only building mobile apps for my own part of the business, but also for others and uh, consulting with them on application projects. And Actually, in my senior year at Boston University, I took a class on cybersecurity, and it was the only one offered at the time. I was kind of like, eh, I'll just take this. It might be fun. It might not be. And it was actually really fun. The midterm and final exams, we had to hack a server, which was crazy and really cool. It was a great introduction for all of us, I think. And um, for our midterm project... We had to either replicate someone's research or do our own security research hacking into something. And so me and a few colleagues actually hacked into the Square Reader. And our professor thought that the research was so cool and unique that he suggested that we submit it to Black Hat, which Black Hat USA is the largest security conference in the world, um, a really fun event. And so we submitted and it got accepted. And so my first real experience with the security industry was going to Black Hat and being on CNN and being on CNBC and Fox News and presenting to a bunch of hackers about my research. Uh, and obviously, I fell in love immediately. Wow. <laughs> like, I was so thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, And to be clear, that's like this. That's the square reader, like the, the credit card reader that you're, ta- you're yes, talking about. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. So cool. We turned it into um, a credit card skimmer, actually. It was really cool with a hardware encryption bypass. Yeah. And then we did a few things on the software side as well. But um, the hardware encryption bypass was definitely the headline. And yeah, it's just every year there's what the security industry calls hacker summer camp, where there are a bunch of really awesome events in Vegas, including Black Hat and DEF CON. And um, it's like nothing else in the security industry. So experiencing that, I felt very lucky for that being my first real experience with the community. And um, I have wanted to be in security ever since. 
That sounds absolutely terrifying. <laughs> so before we got started with the recording, we were just mentioning to you that, that we're just a couple of .NET developers who realized that at some point somebody wants to talk to us about how secure our applications are. So what, what are we talking about when the term or terms come up like SecOps and, and things like that? Yeah, so this is the really interesting thing about developers and their applications today. There's this whole part of security called application security, obviously. Name speaks sure itself. And then there's a totally different part of security, which is uh, what I cover, security operations. And security operations, as I mentioned earlier, is all about finding and stopping attacks that are happening in the enterprise. But the thing is, it's actually not as separate from application security as we maybe think it might be. Because ultimately, what are developers doing all the time? They're creating applications that have access to customer data, to important IP. And that is ultimately not just an entryway for an attack, but a potential, a potential point for an attack from a hacker or from some cyber threat actor. So ultimately, the security operations team does need some level of visibility into what normal behavior looks like on these applications and what they need to do if there is abnormal behavior happening on these applications. But that's particularly hard, especially when developers are making their own software all the time and there is no real standard for what normal looks like unless you know the application in and out. So this is one of the areas that I'm exploring right now because I think it is very important to enterprises and it's also a very complex problem. Um, so that's the crossover between SecOps and AppSec as it is right now. And it's really becoming even more of a problem over time, <laughs> given how many applications are moving to the cloud. Yeah, it does, does moving applications to the cloud magically make things more secure? Are there things that we need to be more aware of? Or uh, you'd mentioned, you know, keeping and keeping an eye on what normal looks like for our applications. Do we need to provide new, better, different instrumentation? What what are what are the things that we need to be aware of or be on the lookout for or build into the applications as we're as we're writing them? It's a good question. So First, moving applications to the cloud does not make them inherently more secure. It's kind of like when people ask me, oh, if I use a Mac instead of a Windows laptop, am I going to be more secure? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> you know, it's all um, a measurement of risk. And so, but what is important to consider is that when you think about moving applications to the cloud, basically you're moving from that model where when they're on-premise, when these applications are on-premise, you own everything about them. You have to take care of them. You have to do the care and feeding, all of that. And when you move them to the cloud, you're in a shared trust model. And that means that some of the responsibility is then delegated to that cloud provider, but you also have aspects that you need to take into consideration with access to that application and how how not only your customers are accessing that application, but how you are accessing that application application, what data you're storing, what data you're encrypting, those types of things. So there are still very important things that developers need to take into consideration as they move applications to the cloud. And in addition, 
and this doesn't just apply to the cloud, but I, I'd argue that cloud has made it this easier. You also have to consider the third party risks that are inherent with using other individuals' software within your own software. So making sure that these systems are patched when new updates are released, not using old versions of someone else's code. Things like that are really important because those are the vulnerabilities where we end up with something like Log4J, <laughs> which has been the nightmare for uh, developers and security teams <laughs> for, for the last several months. In trying to understand, especially from a developer side uh, and an application side, do we need to understand like what motives or what like targets someone who's you know trying to attack the enterprise what what are, what are they what are their objectives does would that help us to understand what things we need to be looking out for or what are some of those motives that what are, what are people trying to trying to do what what why why would they attack the enterprise obviously maybe they're trying to get some sort of financial gain or like i, I don't I don't know all the different ones, but you know what what are what are some of the common um, reasons for that, and how do applications sort of fit into that uh, framework of well, this is the path towards, or this is reason why they're the target. I don't know if that's a good question, but no, it totally is. It's honestly what a lot of this industry is founded on, and it's one of the one of the guiding principles that sometimes gets lost. Uh, there's so much stuff that people need to know when they're in security that the basics tend to get um, really pulled away. <laughs> and you completely forget that there's like this whole foundation that needs to be talked about if you're going to be able to have a common language to communicate about the challenges here. So with that in mind, there's this thing called the CIA triad, which has nothing to do with the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> but instead, and so I don't know why they named it that. They could have gone with any <laughs> any version of that acronym. Um, but the CIA triad stands for... Um, uh, oh my God. <laughs> now I can't remember the C. Oh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And these are the three things that we need to do to keep data that is important to the enterprise or important to our customers secure. We need to maintain its confidentiality. We need to maintain its integrity. And we need to make sure that it is available for the business and for customers to access. And so a lot of times we associate, I'd say, development and uh, IT with that availability aspect trying to maintain as close to 100% uptime as possible, trying to make sure that customers have access when they need to. But with security, we need to take all three of these things into account in different ways. And they also present themselves in very different ways, depending on the attackers we're talking about. So to throw another factor into this mix, not only do we have the CIA triad, but we also, generally speaking, have three different types of threat actors. The first is the um, hacktivists, people who are really looking to access data to make a statement, to deface a website, to spill a bunch of documents that are important to to a government, that type of thing. And so they're obviously tending towards looking to affect either the confidentiality of the data or in some cases, depending on the activity, the availability of that data by defacing a website, preventing people from accessing it. Then you have the cyber criminals. These people are looking to make money. That is their sole goal 
<laughs> in this operation. And unfortunately, a lot of them are willing to do it in pretty dark ways. They can do a lot of different things with regards to the uh, availability of the data and also the confidentiality of the data. Things like stealing identity information, stealing personally identifiable data um, from a particular customer base, stealing financial records. And this, sure, you can make some money off of it, but it's not nearly as profitable as affecting the availability of the data through things like a ransomware attack. That's where they make a boatload of money. Ransomware is a huge attack vector for cyber criminals because they can just automate most of the process and then collect ransoms for those who clicked on that accidental phishing link. And depending on the size company, they can be massive, massive ransoms. And depending on the complexity of the ransomware, not only can they collect a ransom for just giving the business access to its data again, they can also steal all that data and affect the confidentiality of that data unless an organization is willing to pay again. So it's kind of like a double extortion scheme. So still with me? <laughs> I know this is a lot. Okay. The, the last one is um, the one that we all talk about a lot and we hear a lot about in the news. But the yeah, question is, if it's as common as we think it is, I think that a lot of businesses say sophisticated attacks when really... It's not as sophisticated as we all think, but this last category is those sophisticated attacks that we see from nation state threat actors. These groups are looking to do very different things depending on the geopolitics of the region and the situation on the ground. So for example, one country that is intending to invade another country, for example, may choose to uh, ransom certain systems so that that country can't necessarily communicate. Like they might specifically target telecom providers and try to shut them offline for a certain period of hours. They can use that as part of more advanced warfare. They very often, and, and this is the second one is one of the most common things that nation state threat actors do is they're looking to steal IP. They're looking to steal intellectual property or really just any information that you might want from another government or another private enterprise. And then there are also other times where they'll look to affect the integrity of that data as well, although this is probably one of the least common things that we see. And that's just really more of a, a gesture to, to sabotage certain governments or certain enterprises and maybe doesn't have the immediate impact that we see with something like a ransomware attack, but could have long-term effects. So what are the ways that company, large companies and organizations, enterprise level companies need to protect themselves? I know there's, uh, there's a certain amount of bureaucracy that sometimes we get annoyed at that you have to go through security protocols and, and security offices and, and legal offices to, to do some, procurement of certain software licenses and things like that. Uh, maybe we need to go through some extra hoops to be able to open up specific ports and things like that to, for our applications and, and go through processes to provision things in our cloud providers. Is, is that enough? I mean, again, we, we had mentioned keeping an eye on what is normal, keeping an eye on traffic, 
um, doing lots of instrumentations and monitoring of our applications? Is it as simple as if if we're in the United States and we have a company, we work for a company, we work for an enterprise that has only U.S. employees or U.S. consumers or U.S. clients, do we just disallow external traffic from outside the United States? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that can, could be effective, but maybe that's pretty, maybe that's he- too heavy handed. Yeah. So this is another great question because it is, it is the game of major trade-offs for security teams, right? Cause ultimately the challenge here is sure. Like the, the big joke that everyone in security says is, Hey, you want to be secure? Pull the cable out of the back of the laptop and <laughs> shut it off and hit it with a hammer and you'll never have to worry about it again. Um, but ultimately security is a service to the rest of the business in order to keep it safe. And if you have no business, then you have no security. And if you have no security, then you could be in trouble very soon. (laughs) Um, so it is about striking a balance, but more than striking a balance, it's about identifying frictionless ways to implement security or as close to frictionless as possible that makes sense and that still provide the business with what it needs to do to succeed. I'm actually releasing some research um, related to this this week on the state of enterprise breaches or within the next few weeks. And one of the findings is that there are some enterprises where security is one of the main things stopping them from doing traditional digital transformation efforts, like moving to the cloud, for example. And you know what? These businesses are way more likely to get hit with a cyber attack because they're not actually able to make the transformative changes that they need to in order to actually improve their security because the security team is worried about compliance or they're worried about the process that it's going to take to move all these applications to the cloud and the work that it's going to put on them. So all of this is to say the way that we think about this Um, that I talk to everyone at Forrester about (laughs) and that we think about this at Forrester is through moving towards a zero trust security strategy. Now, this is more focused around the IT team or the security team, but I do think that it has important lessons for developers, for IT, for all aspects of the business. And what moving towards zero trust means is it's this concept of never trust, always verify. So it's always looking to provide access to things when they're needed by trusted entities and verifying that trust, making sure that users don't have access permissions, for example, making sure a really interesting use case that's very simple and it kind of communicates this point really well is you would not believe the number of organizations that don't actually deprovision users after they leave the enterprise. Huge problem. (laughs) Yeah, huge problem because like it takes a lot of coordination. You know, it's like the HR team, the IT team, the security team, you all have to go back and forth. And so you end up with all of these users floating around that have access to things that they really should not have access to because they don't, they shouldn't exist anymore. And that leaves you with a potential security vulnerability because those accounts are just sitting waiting for an attacker to find them. And it's, it's a very similar thing when you think about things like one of the common, one of the common attack 
targets that we think about in security is that laptop or that server that is in the middle of nowhere that no one has seen or heard from in months and it hasn't been updated and no one is managing it. And that's the way that attackers are able to get into the network. And it happens more often than people think. And so Zero Trust looks to address those things by trying to maintain an accurate asset inventory by providing and provisioning access to resources like that, that are secure by default, instead of coming into the situation with default passwords, <laughs> things like that. All of these little steps that you can take and then layering things like security monitoring and security operations on top of that. So what what are some of those ac- like actionable things that you can do to sort of implement that zero trust? Yeah. So this, <laughs> this gets complicated quickly because usually this ends up in a conversation where clients are like, can you just list off everything that I need to do like one by one? And then I'll tell <laughs> Please do you it can for stop me, when, when I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but maybe the best way to approach this is from a developer's perspective. So one of the things that I think about a lot, not so much on the application security side, but when I'm talking to vendors who make security operations products is their own product security. And I ask them questions like, do you provide an SBOM to your customers of all of the different software that you're currently using, a software bill of materials? And that is actually not as common as you would think. But that's an example of something where, and I know this well from having done it, when you're developing an application, you don't always remember what open source software you're using by the end. You lose track of the everything. And so... Having development teams keep that list up to date and be aware of what they're using makes it easier so that you, when you need to go back and you need to update a certain thing or issue a patch, you can do that more comprehensively because you're actually aware of what you're using. So that's on the asset management and asset inventory side of things. But that's one aspect of zero trust, not just from a technical perspective, but also even from a third-party risk perspective, where this other organization is also, and pardon this pun, but zero trusting you and is expecting you to provide actual information on what applications you're using and why and what frameworks you're using, things like that. So to kind of like push back a little bit uh, to something you said earlier, but how do you make that happen frictionlessly? Because it sounds like a whole lot of the things that you're saying from like a dev perspective is like, well, those are the, those are all the things I have to fill out in order to get this thing done. Right. Like those are all of the queries and paperwork. And, and if I could just, if you just gave me access, I could just have it done and and it'd be all done for you, for me, you know, like it'd be all set up. Yeah. So this is, there are a couple of different factors here. First, it comes down to developers also realizing that they're a service to the business And as such, they need to meet certain business qualifications. And unfortunately, whether we like it or not, uh, the federal government in particular, and and I kind of see this as a trickle down effect to the private sector, is really pushing for these types of updates and for zero trust in particular to be implemented within enterprises. And so this is going to be a problem for the business, whether or not the business likes it (laughs) Uh, very soon, if not already. Um, The second thing is 
this is a huge, huge part of what security teams are trying to do right now. Security, you know, it's still a very new industry and there's still a lot of limitations around the capabilities that security teams are able to provide and the maturity with which they think about security as a service to the rest of the business. That as a concept is so really new and really fresh. And so on the application security side, there's a lot of conversations going on around building security champions, helping to build more um, T-shaped people who have experience in other areas like security and can advocate for them internally within the team and develop kind of uh, priorities and incentives to implement these types of things within the team. So it's not going to be a perfect process. It's not going to be totally frictionless, but there are ways that security teams are looking to make it easier. And these are a couple. Also, you can get into the whole tools perspective where there are different tools that you can use to test your application for vulnerability, stuff like that. That's a ongoing work in progress, but I, I like to go beyond trying to say this tool will solve everything. <laughs> like we're not going to have any problems anymore. <laughs> well, and, and the biggest problem of course, is that we keep moving the goalposts. We keep moving as an industry. We keep coming up with new and different ways that we can shoot ourselves in the foot. But I think that's the coolest part. You know, security would be so boring if we were just using the same technology as 20 years ago. We'd have no problems. I mean, <laughs> if we didn't innovate beyond the wheel, we wouldn't even have, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that it's, it's one of the cool things is that the acceptance that security is always going to be behind the technology because security has to be made to fit around the technology and not vice versa. And also security has the privilege of being able to enable the business to use some pretty cool technologies when they want to, if it does it right. Very cool. Um, so I'm going to also push a little bit um, on. So one, one of the, the things that you were mentioning there for uh, zero trust is you're talking about having needing to have the, the, you know, a listing of all of these, of the applications, listing of the, of the, um, and, uh, isn't that, isn't that creating something to trust? Isn't, isn't that in itself like the thing that we're all working our trust back to, or how do we, how do we, uh, sort of figure that one out? Yeah, it is turtles all the way down, as they say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it absolutely is. And it is creating something that you have to trust. Um, there are, coming back to the tools will save it, solve every problem, there are tools being developed to maintain that type of inventory and that type of list that obviously have their own product security requirements in place. It still requires you trust a third party. Ultimately, the thing that's interesting about Zero Trust is that even though the name is Zero Trust, there's always going to be some level of trust in something. And you just need to make sure that you validate it as much as possible. So it's about minimizing it, right? Like yeah, minimizing, minimizing where risk. we put that trust. Yeah. 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 I, I would see if, if we, if we have 10 different dev teams and they all have a software bill of materials that all indicate we're, we're heavily invested in this software package or this open source project, we can keep that on our radar that if they discover a vulnerability or if they release uh, some 
issue that they've discovered or, or they're they're aware of, that can immediately go to the, to the top of our list. Absolutely. And the interesting thing that I'm starting to explore here too is as we think about security as a service to the rest of the organization, what does that mean for using these types of software packages, for example? Like in some organizations, you can't use open source software or you can't use certain software because they're like, this doesn't pass our security checks. But there's a different way to approach that where you manage what trusted applications look like and address most use cases and then customize from there, but keep that scope much smaller. Um, and it really it's really all about kind of moving the perception and the reality of the security team as a governance function into a supporting function. So, so what else, what haven't we discussed yet that you want to, you want folks to be sure to have at least a grasp or an understanding of these are topics that we should all be aware of, or, or what do you wish other people would understand that we, we should be paying more attention to these topics in particular? Mm, that's a great question. There are a couple of things that come to mind. The first is a little bit more complex because we hear, so we hear privacy thrown around a lot. People talk a lot about privacy being important. It's usually vendors who talk about privacy being important. We actually don't hear a lot of end users saying, yeah, my privacy is so important to me because you just, you know, your data is everywhere. But I think that it is going to be important to have privacy and to protect your data and to have ownership of your data in the future, especially, and this is the part where I'm going to sound kind of nuts, but especially as we venture into things like the metaverse, for example, and we think about things like NFTs, this is where privacy is actually going to become really important as the internet matures. And so it's a moment to think about where you're sharing your data and why, and how you can try to manage that data sharing. Um, even things like just relinquishing access to your data, which you can do, I mean, you can pretend that you're European and do it under GDPR, or you can do it if you're in California. Um, but, but a lot of businesses will allow you to revoke access to your data as is if you choose to. And so being free to do that. And also when we're thinking about it from a developer perspective, designing with that in mind and with personal ownership of data being an important feature, it's actually a differentiating feature. And I think it will be a differentiating feature in the future as well. Um, the other thing that I think is important is every little bit counts. You know, I released a blog on ransomware during the colonial pipeline attack last year, and I titled it ransomware survived by outrunning the guy next to you based off of that old fable about um, two men in the woods and they come across a bear. One of the men gives up and starts to pray and the other one starts tying his boots. And the guy says to him, what are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun a bear. I just have to outrun you. That is the mindset to think about security through as an individual and unfortunately sometimes as an enterprise, although hopefully on a longer journey as an enterprise. Do all the basic stuff now so that you are at least better protected than organizations that just refuse to. And there are a lot of them. 
That is things like enable multi-factor authentication, use single sign-on where possible, use strong passwords, use a password manager, don't click on links in emails. I don't click on any links in emails. I always go to Google and search for it or, or find an alternative way of accessing the information because they can get really tricky. Um, so even basic steps like these can put you miles ahead of most individuals. And I highly recommend taking those steps. And then once you get there, you realize, okay, this isn't so bad. I can uh, move on to other things as well. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a different world. I remember when we were kids, it was don't get into cars with strangers. Now it's <laughs> let me call a stranger to come pick me up and take me to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk about zero trust. What are some of the resources that we can, uh, you know, direct listeners to who want to be better T-shaped developers and kind of get into more security stuff? Um, you know, maybe they want to, whether it's like application security or maybe they want to start playing around with trying to like hack things or, or you know, you know, more SecOps sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll obviously shout out to my own blog. <laughs> Um, which is at um, hackerxbella.xyz. And that my whole goal with that is to simplify a lot of security concepts for people who aren't in the security community. Um, in addition to that, Forrester has a blog that goes over a lot of uh, concepts related to security and risk um, application security through Sandy Carielli, who is a colleague of mine and a wealth of knowledge on application security and um then a lot of areas of security besides that as well, including sec security operations, which I belong on quite a bit. And there are also a lot of really useful tools out there to help you learn how to get into security. If you want to hack something, there's Hack the Box, which is very interactive. It's very fun. Um, you could just start doing bug bounties on hacker one if you wanted to tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to learn more about security as an industry, SANS is a great teaching resource that has a lot of accessible webinars and also even paid courses if you want to learn through, through those means. And also I would be remiss not to mention InfoSec Twitter, which can be very toxic, but can also be very helpful to learn things. And there are actually a lot of really nice people there. So um, highly recommend. Yeah, I think those are all resources I've never heard of before. So that is fantastic. <laughs> oh, <there we> go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And Reddit, actually. Sysadmin on Reddit. Ooh, that's a lot of good stuff. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those looking to just get started in the industry or looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, so for security specifically, not being afraid to look stupid. I've found that uh, if I try things that I think are going to be stupid, sometimes they actually work and it's interesting. And if they are stupid, then nobody sees but me. <laughs> or if someone else sees, they don't remember it because they don't care. Um, so not being able to try new things, I think, is very important. That's the thing that I've done my entire career. In addition to that, um, and, and very much so related, is just doing it. Like, don't, don't talk about it. Just do it. I remember when I was much younger, I was um, 
talking all the time about how I wanted to go to Italy. I was like, oh, I would love to go. I have family there. I just want to do it. I talked about it for a year. And then one of my friends was like, why don't you just do it? Like, what are you doing? Like, just do it. And so I did. And I just booked a one-way ticket to Malta. And it was an amazing experience. And it had a lot of hardships, but it was also very transformative. Um, And so that's what I'd say is like, like Nike says, just do it and just run with it. Um, And also reach out to people in the security community, especially, but I also found this in the developer community. People are really nice and they really want to help. And you can run into a lot of that. Um, So reach out to people, ask for their advice, ask for their thoughts and whatever you give them, they will give back to you. Um, And a lot of times a lot more than you give to them, which is pretty amazing. That's awesome. So you mentioned your blog, but uh, where can listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Yeah. So feel free to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Allie Mellon um, backslash Hackerbella. And also on Twitter. I am on Twitter quite a bit. I do a lot of um, sassy posts. So feel free to find me <laughs> at HackerXBella um, for more security updates and just tech generally too. I, I like posting about it. So. Well, Ali, thanks so much. This has been incredibly enlightening and somewhat terrifying, but I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That was Ali Mellon. Ali is a Forrester analyst covering security operations. She has been in the technology industry for over a decade in various engineering roles, running her own engineering consultancy for a number of years before becoming a hacker. She advises enterprise clients in their security operations practices and is a frequent speaker at global industry-leading events with the press. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>